This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. I wish I had this show a decade ago. Now the show, it's about you. So we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. There we've got the fundamentals of dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, charisma, vocal tonality, networking, and relationship development, all those topics that we now know are key to our success in life. And we've got our live programs running every single week in Hollywood, California. Details at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Notice the two dots in there. Or give us a call here at the office, 888 7177, or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting everyone here in Los Angeles. Today, we're talking with my friend Dan Shawbell. He's the managing partner of something called Millennial Branding, which is a Gen Y research and consulting firm. In short, he teaches some of you useless millennials how to really kick butt. And I mean, I say that tongue in cheek because I think millennials are amazing. I just think that we don't understand them. And of course, every generation thinks differently of the one below them. And we'll talk about that here as well. He also wrote a book called Promote Yourself, The New Rules for Career Success. And nothing could be more true. There are new rules in this area. We're gonna talk about staying relevant at work, especially for the millennial crowd, gaining more confidence and understanding the ins and outs of the workplace and how to get ahead even if you're young. Something called the skills gap, why it keeps widening and how you guys can sneak around it. And of course, becoming more valuable by becoming an entrepreneur at work or an intrapreneur to be fancy with it. We're also gonna discuss and cover engaging in activities outside the office, why and what, developing our soft skills and getting more face time with those that count. So enjoy this one with Dan Shawbell. Dan Shawbell, you're the managing partner of something called Millennial Branding, which is funny. It's a funny name because for me, when I hear Millennial Branding, right today, this is one of the best and worst brands you can have is being a millennial, right? Because it's like, oh, you're young, you're hip, you know all this cool stuff about the new internet economy and you're you're making your own way and you're changing the way everyone looks at work and also you're kind of useless and not good for anything as far as us old farts are concerned when we try to hire you. You know, it's really interesting and I've done a, a lot of research on millennials, of course, uh, almost 20 research studies at this point and every single generation has a negative view of the upcoming generation. So last year we found that Gen Xers and boomers view millennials as being lazy, entitled, all of those descriptors, as you've probably heard at least one of them before in the media. Then this year we found that millennials or Gen Y, they're both interchangeable terms, uh, feel that Generation Z, which is the upcoming generation, so these the oldest of which are juniors in college, the youngest of which are four years old, are lazy. Uh, but every generation has a positive view of their elders, which we thought was pretty interesting. That is interesting, because you, you would think that each generation would be like, oh yeah, they're too conservative, and you know they needed to loosen up. I mean, that's probably in the study somewhere too, huh? Uh, we didn't get that deep. We kind of wanted to 
you know, show how they view each other, how they view themselves. And of course, they view themselves positively. They view their elders positively. But when it comes to the up and comers, it's always negative. And I think part of this is because they might feel threatened for, because of younger people. Every generation now is growing up with access to more information, resources, you know, technology and people at a younger age. Yes. People who are being born right now will hear all of your podcasts. They'll so many articles online. There's so many more people around the world who will have internet access. It's just there's such an advantage now if you're young compared to people who are maybe 50s, 60s, etc. So the gap in terms of technology and resources and, and all of that is kind of getting broader because of the amount of change that's occurring and the speed of which it is occurring at. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I can see that. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. My parents said the same thing about me. Oh, you have access to so many things. You have access to so many opportunities. And, you know, I was talking with an older person before and he was working in China. And he's, I thought that was amazing. He's like 50 years old. And I was like, wow, that's really great. And he goes, yeah, actually, a lot of people in my division are going over there back and forth. I go there a few times a year. And I said, you know, how long have you been doing that? He's like, oh, you know, for five years. And I said, wow, yeah, 20 years ago there was no department of like Asian business affairs or like a China desk at his office. And certainly the only people who maybe went to China was the CEO on, on a fancy vacation with his wife or, or somebody who had the responsibility to research new business opportunities. And even then they weren't going back and forth to China, but now he's basically got an office in China. It's, it's pretty incredible. And, and there's a lot of that, globalization plus the fact that you're right people can hear these podcasts they can grow up and educate themselves with more information they would ever get in school especially on advanced topics so you're going to see these kids who normally had to wait for their teacher to show them something or go to the library and absorb books you're going to see kids learning at home for 12 hours a day sucking in nuclear physics and things like that exactly and if you're not staying relevant and being relevant is the number one concern of all employees globally you know being relevant being you know, an expert in the right fields, the right time, you know, constantly getting new skills, uh, hard skills, constantly, you know, networking and just at the right place at the right time, then you're going to be stuck. And then someone else is going to take your job and they're going to, they're not going to demand as much money. So people who are all excited that they're getting paid six figures now and they're not brushing up on their skills, et cetera, these people can be replaced for someone who will work for sixty, seventy thousand $70,000. Uh, so there's a lot more pressure on people in this economy now to not even just millennials, but people of all ages to stay relevant. And the big concern, especially for people who are older workers, are they're perceived as not as relevant because of their age, even if they're highly proficient with technology. And that's part of the fear that they have. Yeah, I know a lot of people who are computer engineers and things like that that are in their 40s and 50s. And they're thinking, what now? Because there's a lot of guys that age, I'm sure, at Google and things like that that are super, super sharp, and they have a proven track record, but there's just as many guys, well, there's more guys, who are, hey, man, I've been really proficient in, like, ACT or whatever for, you know, two decades. I'm the guy, and it's like, yeah, we don't care, man. They got Salesforce, and it's, like, a whole different thing, and I get email complaints, like, how do I stay relevant at work? Because they're getting forced into these weird roles where, they're kind of going to get axed and it's just a matter of time. But rather than getting axed right away, they're getting downshifted into these weird departments that don't really do anything. I think that's the new lay people off is put them into the unassigned department uh, to use the Silicon Valley term 
and then eventually they'll just kind of fade away because they'll get bored and quit. Exactly. Fade them away and let them quit so you don't have to quit because you don't want to get sued and all this and companies try and protect themselves. And think about it from a corporate perspective. And, and this we're talking about the individual perspective here. From a company's perspective, I'm trying to, especially for these Fortune 500 companies that have shareholders, you know, I'm trying to grow as much revenue as possible. I'm trying to lower costs so that the profit margin's high. If I can get workers for cheaper that have the same output in terms of work, why wouldn't I? So that's the thing. Always look at it from the corporate perspective. And that shows the sign of that you have this more pressure on the individual to work harder and to keep getting new skills and to, and to constantly network and to adapt to change. And it's just much harder now. It's not a linear career path. It's not like you go to college, you get a degree, and then you, you know, climb the corporate ladder to CEO, and then you eventually retire at like 60, 70 years old. Um, that path is just so much more complicated now, especially when people have an average of 11 jobs between the ages of 18 and uh, 45 now, uh, three to six careers in their lifetime. And then millennials, they leave their first job in two years. So it's constant change. If you're not good at adapting to change, then you have a serious problem on your hands. That is, a, that is a problem. And you wrote a whole book on this, which we'll link in the show notes, called Promote Yourself, The New Rules for Career Success. And this is interesting because are you job hopping every two years or is it their first job is only for two years? It's their first job. It's for two years. But for the most part, I mean, they're not staying at a job every, they're not staying at a company for like 10 years anymore, okay. uh, like the silent generation did, who's not in the workplace. Uh, so part of what I tell people is, you know, if everyone's jumping around, if you actually are loyal and do the opposite, you can rise up much faster. Really? So is in your studies and in your research, is there like a cutoff where oh, this guy's been here longer, so your value increases exponentially? Because I would imagine that to be the case, where if everyone has only been there for two years, save for 25% of the company, rather than just being one of 100 people that's been there for X amount of time, you're one-third of X or one-fourth of X or less that's been there for longer than two years. Your value doesn't go up proportional to the amount of time that you've been there, it goes up exponentially because now you're the only guy who knows the job or you're the only guy who has experience managing at that level, et cetera. Yeah, and just knowing because I was in corporate America for three and a half years and a few different jobs at the same company, I just know that just by knowing people in the company, knowing how things work, understanding the corporate politics, it is definitely an advantage. And you have to start over every time you move to a company. And even more than that, you know, I think, if you're an entrepreneur but don't want to start a business but have that entrepreneurial spirit, be an entrepreneur. You know, that's how you stand out at work too. So if you start up this company, you can make a huge difference. You stay loyal, you figure things out. And the thing is, you don't even really learn uh, enough about your job uh, until after six months, anyways. So if you're loyal, then you can actually stand out. People will notice you. You'll already have the, the, the network. You'll know how to get things done. And then as people move around, there will be open positions for you. And in the next four years, 20% uh, of the workplace will be retiring, and that's baby boomers. And by retiring, I mean, you know, they might be hired back as consultants. They're not going to be in this type of role that they were in. They might, you know, start businesses. Uh, that's a whole new trend. But for the most part, there's going to be a lot of open positions. And so if you waited out for another few years, wow, you can really accelerate your career if you're loyal. And that makes a lot of sense, and I love that. That's good news, because the bad news is that we sort of talked about during the pre-interview here, 50% of millennials are either unemployed or underemployed, which basically is the same thing. 
uh, or just gave up on finding a job. And it's easy to go, ah, these lazy, useless millennials, you know, they're not even looking for jobs. Of course, they're unemployed. They can't get their shit together. But I guess there's different reasons for this or or is that the reason? I mean, why is that the case? That seems extreme. And we're all kind of sick of hearing, well, it's the economy and stuff like that, because we've heard on the contrary that there's tons of jobs there for people who can do them and want to. Yeah, so I investigated this because this is one of the biggest things in the world right now in terms of the economy and jobs. Uh, so basically, over the past three months, uh, the amount of jobs open in America is 3.7 million. So it's been consistent over the past three months. And it used to be a little bit less. It used to be like 3.4, you know, et cetera. But now it's been consistently 3.7. It's like, what the heck's going on here? And so the big issue that you know companies are dealing with is what is called the skills gap meaning that we don't have the right talent coming out of college uh, to fill the right positions in companies. Uh, and so because colleges and companies are not kind of connecting and uh, kind of companies aren't dictating curriculum and saying these are the skills we're looking for, et cetera. But the thing is that's so interesting is that we, have, we still have people who major at liberal arts. And so we did a whole study on what majors yield what jobs and to fill the skills gap. And we found that only 2% of companies are hiring liberal arts majors nationally. And, but we have all these people who are majoring in liberal arts. So they, you know, they come out, they try and major in music or writing, et cetera. And then they come out, they live with their parents when they graduate. And then they can't get a job and they're stuck. And this is like this huge epidemic of, you know, there's no, it's got to be a wake up call saying, okay, we got to get with the picture right now. Enough with this whole optimism of, of everything working out like millennials have. And let's be start to be realists. Let's start to really identify, you know, what majors really turn into open positions, what skills I actually need to get jobs when I graduate. Obviously, like business degrees, engineering degrees, computer science, those are the ones that are yielding the most jobs, accounting. So if you focus on those, you will probably be in better shape. Uh, but again, people are like, oh, I'll just do liberal arts, you know, get by, just party in school. And then they graduate and 21 million are living with their parents. A lot are underemployed. You know, a lot have just given up completely. You know, there was a study that came out today. It said one in every five person, people who um, got laid off from a job or can't find another job. So, you know, it's about positioning yourself for success. And by to do that, you got to choose the right major. You got to choose the right classes. You got to get the right skills and really prepare yourself because you're going to graduate and you're going to have to somehow get a job. And if you haven't taken the steps to kind of position yourself, you have the most amount of opportunities, then you're stuck. Yeah, no, this makes a lot of sense as well. But it also sounds like the advice our parents would have given us, which is, oh, that major's not going to get you anywhere. I remember when I didn't have a major, I just told everybody I was going to major in political science. And they were like, no, you're screwed if you do that. And I was like, geez, that's not really my major. Calm down. I'm just trying to get you off my back, you know? And it makes perfect sense to me because as, as someone who hires people, I don't really even care what people did in college because it's so irrelevant, but I definitely care if they majored in like literature because it shows me not just that they have no skills in an area that I need most likely, but they didn't even think far enough ahead to think, wow, I'm literally screwing myself over pretty hard right now, but I'm going to do it anyway because I like books. Oh yeah, it's a trap. So basically, we're always told follow your passion, things are just going to work out, and so we, we were so optimistic, right? And then the whole market crash and things are not going well. And we haven't adjusted to that. And I think the adjustment is really needed now because if you don't have these skills, if you're not like at least trying to get these hard skills and the ability to kind of fill these positions that are open, 
then you're not going to do it. And not everyone's like you, who's who's able to you know create a podcast that's world renowned, et cetera, and monetize it. Um, not everyone is is capable of doing that. And a lot of these, you know, the social network movie, you know, a lot of like um, David Carpenter Tumblr selling his company for over a million or a billion. Uh, you know, Instagram over a billion dollars, all these companies, it's just created such a hype. So you, you have a portion of millennials who think they're entrepreneurs, maybe their parents toss them some money to start a business, and and they're just doing it to either avoid the job or because they think it's easy or whatnot. And now I think we're heading into a world where it's like, they can't pull it off. So they're going to try and come back to corporate America. And then they're going to find that companies don't want to hire entrepreneurs. So that's another trap they're going to get into. So it's this is crazy amounts of things going on. And so these are the things that I've been investigating. And, and my, my whole thing is I'm trying to help people navigate it when they're, you know, going through all these hardships. I understand that completely because I hire entrepreneurs for certain types of jobs at the Art of Charm and I won't hire them for other types of jobs. And I I won't go into so much detail on that because I don't want people to tailor make their resumes and things like that for me. But uh, when they apply for things, but it's very true. And I understand why companies wouldn't want that. And it is very much a trap because I live in San Francisco. I'm, I've startups all over the place right around me. There's a lot of kids that come in where their parents finance something and there's other people that are, are very smart and very talented, but it's literally as close as we can get to the new rock stars where it's like, my band's going to make it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. But the difference is now it attracts people who aren't dumb and think that their band is going to make it and who aren't delusional about their talent. There's plenty of that. Don't get me wrong. But you can have a great idea and a great product and it can execute really, really well and just not be worth shit. Exactly. Again, it's just way too much hype. And a lot of people are like, oh, millennials, they're the most entrepreneurial generation. And that's such a myth, too. I mean, I've done so much research on this. I did one with Monster two years ago, and it showed that older generations are more entrepreneurial than younger generations. Why? It's because... You know, a lot of them, at least, they've, they've saved up money, they can do it, they've had a, they have more business experience, they know what they're getting themselves into, all of those different factors. Uh, young people just think it's, you know, maybe an excuse not to get a full-time job, maybe out of necessity, because maybe they liber- majored in liberal arts, and they're trying to come up with some mobile app, that you know, music mobile app or something like that, and then they fall into that trap, because big companies do not want to hire entrepreneurs, because they know that they are very positive that they're not going to last that company long, and it's not worth the investment for them. And uh, and then for them, they end up, you know, working on this mobile app. If it works, it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, then they're trapped. They're living with their parents still. And then they're going to just keep trying to, you know, get an internship that maybe they don't get paid for and eventually maybe get a job. So it's just very complicated. That's why I'm always all about, you know, work hard and, and do as much as you can earlier in life so that you're, you're kind of diversified. So I had, before I graduated college, I had, you know, consulting company plus eight internships. So it kind of opened up a, a bunch of different doors for me. Uh, and that's what I recommend to other people. Diversify yourself. Think of yourself as kind of like the stock market. If you only buy GE stock and it goes down, then you're in trouble. But if you are, you know, some experience in consulting, some experience in finance, some experience like across the board, then you have some safety. That makes a lot of sense to me personally. I started my business for a variety of reasons. A lot of them were delusional uh, and in retrospect, weren't very good and I would have been better off had I not done that, et cetera. But I will also say that uh, it's the trap dichotomy is interesting, right? Because you're either forced into it because you are ill-prepared, either because your college 
didn't help you or because you were too dumb to realize that your major was worthless. I throw that word dumb around tongue in cheek because every almost every major in undergrad is worthless aside from a few select ones or because you don't have a choice or because it's something that you're seduced by, right? You don't have a choice. You're forced into it in some way, economics or another, or you're seduced into it because, yeah, there's so much hype around acquisitions and snap, you got the next Snapchat or so you think. So enough crapping on millennials because we get it and they certainly get it because they're the ones who have to live with it. How do we stand out and get ahead at work? Suppose we do manage to finally get a job. Suppose we're out of college, that's done and done. We have maybe some work experience, maybe we don't, but that part is water under the bridge. What do I do if I'm 24, I 25, whatever it is, I just graduated from college or I'm about to, how do I get ahead? How do I stand out at work? Um, we talk a lot about getting jobs, interviewing, nailing interviews, et cetera, et cetera, making great first impressions, all that stuff aside. How do we stand out at work as a new guy, especially as a millennial? Yeah, the first thing you need to do is you need to mask your current role. So what you're hired to do, fill that job description as best as you possibly can, because you can't really stand out until you've done what you were hired to do. Instead, you know, you see a lot of young people, they go and they start their job and then they, you know, start to try and do other people's work or try and get involved in other activities. No, 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 no. Take a step back, nail your current job to the point where you're, you almost get bored of it. And then you can ask for more. Then start to notice what other employees are doing and how you can help them. Then ask your boss if you can take on a project that's kind of outside the scope of what you were hired to do. You know, then, you know, start to identify ways in which you can, you know, support your company from a perspective of, oh, my company, you know, could be using Pinterest to generate more retail sales and they're not doing it. So I'm going to latch on to that, create a presentation to prove the value of Pinterest and how it can be used to this company and then present it to my manager. If my manager likes that and gets buy-in, then they tell their manager and then eventually maybe my project gets funded and then that's a breakout career time for me. And then the other thing is maybe there's something that can be fixed in your company. You look at mistakes your company is making or a process that can be fixed and then you create a presentation around that saying, here's the process, here's how it can be done different, and here's how that would affect uh, your cost structure, and uh, you know, you save X amount of money, et cetera. So that's how you stand out, is you kind of think as an entrepreneur, you go above and beyond what you're hired to do, you do volunteer work, you join associations, you know, special interest groups outside of work to get more intelligence, to get more connected, and then you bring that intelligence back out, back in the workplace. Right, and it's funny because that energy is great. But if you use that energy and you've got your job figured out and you're already nailing your current position, people go, man, this guy's a go-getter. He's out networking. He's in the office late. He's trying to improve on other processes inside the company. This guy, he's going places. But if you do it and you don't have your core competency nailed and handled and your core job functions already done and taken care of, then you're just this ADD kid who can't focus on anything, even though you're doing the exact same thing. Exactly. So nail that role, and then it's time to expand. And you know, it's going to be much easier after six months, eight months, uh, where you've already proved yourself. See, the, here's the thing what people need to realize. As long as you show that you're adding more value than what they're paying you, you're not going to get fired, right? And this makes the most sense if you're in a sales position, right? If I'm increasing revenue by 20% each quarter, 
if they fire me, they're out of their minds. You know, if I, if I'm very entrepreneurial in the organization and I'm able to, you know, create a process that's save, you know, increase efficiencies in the company, they're going to fire me. No, they're not. You know, if you can prove that you're more valuable than what they pay you, that's when you can ask for the promotions. That's when you can really get ahead uh, because you become invaluable to the company. Um, especially, you know, uh, 65% of the people um, that, that I studied for the book, the managers said that, you know, they want to hire and promote subject matter experts. So if you become such an expert in something that your company needs, that's great for your career. Because then, like this was, I was, I had the first social media position at a Fortune 200 company um, back in 2007. And everyone in the company, they're like, oh, we want to uh, use it for this social media for this project, and et cetera. And so they came to me. And so my value increases. So now it, it comes time for raises or promotions, and it's easy to build a case. And that's what you have to start thinking about doing. You want to measure the results of everything you do. You know, did I increase? Revenue, decrease costs, increase efficiencies, you know, attract, you know, 100,000 people to the site compared to 50,000 last month. You know, from your perspective, it's number of listeners, maybe sure. engagement, et cetera. Um, you know, I come from the blogosphere type world, too. It's, you know, again, it's like how many comments, you know, shares. And by having those metrics, it becomes easy for you to prove not just one time, to your manager that you deserve a raise or additional projects, but you can always leverage those quote unquote case studies like any consultant entrepreneur would do to get new opportunities, not just today, not just five years from now, but for the rest of your life. Testimonials, same thing. If someone says, hey, Jordan, you're great. I love your podcast. Well, you could 20 years from now, if you're still doing the podcast, you can point to maybe if Richard Branson said that or, you know, Donald Trump or whoever, whomever would say that. You can always leverage that. And so that's how I look at it. It's all always a long-term play. How do you create credibility, get the skills you need now, build the case studies, get the testimonials, everything intact so you can leverage that for today and in the future? That's so important. I think a lot of people don't really see how they can do this on their own or do this at work. And I, I know just from personal experience, hiring people at The Art of Charm, we get a lot of guys who come in, try to do other things, and I go, hey, 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 slow down. Don't try to do this right now. I hired you to do X, Y, and Z, and you've got half of X done, and now you're writing me three-page documents on where, we, where else we can improve. Not that we don't need to improve in those areas, but I don't want to hear about that from you. And also, your track record right now says you haven't put any points on the scoreboard, so you're the last person that I would listen to. On the other hand, once people start to really crush it, they can start to edge, push the envelope a little bit, innovate in their own position, and I say, hey, great, you know, you're, you're getting it done, you're great there, and then they might say, hey, I've got another idea, another position that I see something that's inefficient, your boss is gonna be 10,000 times more willing to try that out and be more open-minded if he says, well, you've obviously got what it takes to innovate in your own position, sure, let's see how this applies to other areas of the company. But until that point, you're just a guy with a bunch of ideas and no execution, which is actually a really terrible thing to have in any company. Yeah, here's the mindset. So if I'm Jordan's, you know, intern or employee, I need to think about how do I make Jordan look good? How do I make his job easier? How do I, um, you know, impress him? How do I master what he's hired me to do and kind of expand my role so I can add even more value without asking for more money immediately? Those are the things that I need to think about. Uh, maybe I can, you know, 
build new bridges for Jordan by introducing him to new talent that could be on the show. Maybe, you know, I know Jordan has X amount of podcast listeners. Maybe, you know, I'm friends with bloggers or other podcasters where I could increase that number somehow or get him booked on other shows or on TV or whatnot. That's the mindset of a winner. Yeah. You want a job? That sounded pretty good to me. <laughs> no, thanks. I'm self-employed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> got it. Um, and, and what else? I mean, engaging in activities outside the office. I think becoming an entrepreneur at work, great idea. Engaging in activities outside the office, you you touched on that, and I think that's brilliant. I think most people don't do that because what, and a lot of guys that come through the Art of Charm, they'll talk about, oh, I want to start doing this. I want to start doing this at work and being able to engage outside the office and create networking connections and things like that. And they'll come in and want to learn that skill set that we can help them with. But a lot of times people go, yeah, I don't really need that. I mean, I think that's for an older crowd, and I think that's a common misheld belief or a common mistakenly held belief, I should say, where people say, it's kind of like saying networking is for old people, and mm, it's, it's a huge mistake, because when you look at young people who are crushing it and are just like next level stratospheric achievers, they're all people who you go, damn, this guy knows everybody. And it's yeah, always about the whole, network. The one thing I'm proud of, and you know, I, I think I've done a lot, I've just turned 31, Number one thing I'm proud of is the network I've built as an introvert. So leveraging the online medium to build all these connections and to meet them in real life has been my strategy. Oh my God. I mean, I mean, you, you, you know, we obviously share a lot of like the Tim Ferriss's, the, you know, the Ryan Holiday, you know, all the, you, you know, a lot of people I know. And it's because it's always been about got to put networking first, got to do everyone else favors, got to support them because I know what everything comes back and intuitively. So I think the network is by far the most valuable thing that you have because it gives you options. That's the key, right? Yes, yes. It's like if I have this job and I hate it, I am screwed if I don't have a large network because I'll have no connection points that could lead to other opportunities. So you kind of feel like you're desperate. But if you've already established a strong network, then why would you ever be stressed out about being unemployed? Because all you have to do is, oh, I'm unemployed. You know, I'll just reach out to X amount of people and by percentage wise, something's going to work out. All right, back to the show. Yeah, that's a good point as well. A lot of people don't realize that they need to dig their well before they need it. And I talk about this quite a bit here on the show and, and at our boot camps because people think, well, I don't need to network. And I, I remember when I was uh, laid off from law or when I, I guess, I guess I left, but let's be honest, they were going to lay everybody off on Wall Street. I, they hired some person who had like a networking group or whatever. And they were like, why aren't you ever at networking group? And I remember thinking, oh, I'm just busy. Or I, what I said was, oh, I'm really busy. And, you know, I've got a lot of things going on. I'm working on starting a business. And they're like, oh, well, you should come to networking group. And what I was really thinking was, why the hell would I want to network with a bunch of people who are going to be running around looking for jobs? They're just looking for jobs. These people aren't that useful. And I was right and wrong at the same time. But the problem was those people were going to a networking group run by a career counselor because they hadn't done any networking before they got shit canned. And now they had to come and network from a place of desperation because they were out of luck. And if you've got a great network before anything ever happens, you're never going to have any problem looking for or seeking or finding opportunity because for most people that I know that are kick-ass networkers, they don't even think about things failing because they're literally juggling opportunity 
and constantly turning it down because jobs are flying at those people left and right. And exactly. It's the new currency is your network. It's less about how much money you have. It's more about who you know because who you know can pretty quickly turn into cash anyways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it does regularly, especially for people who are trying to become entrepreneurial. And I talk again about people buy you, right? That's a common running theme at The Art of Charm. People buy you. They don't buy your product. They don't buy your service. And if you have a great product or service, they still won't buy it if you're not up to snuff, right? And it's all about your personal brand. And, and that's so key, especially for millennials who are very, by and large, so young that they're all replaceable. Exactly. So how do you make, so basically a career is just, uh, the sum of the, the decisions you make on a daily basis, right? Everything mm -hmm. accumulates. So the sooner you start accumulating experiences and making these decisions, hopefully some are good decisions earlier in your life, the more set up you are in the future. You know, that's why I'm happy. I started working when I was 13, even though I was catering, I was a camp counselor eventually. And then I had my first job doing sales calls. I hated doing cold calling, but I, but you know, all these experiences, you learn a lot about yourself, what you like doing, what you don't like doing, how to get along with people. There's just so many elements to this that people miss. And so I just like to put a lot of pressure on people, like work really hard, do as much as you can, because, you know, you'll thank your, your younger self. And this is what I actually tell a lot of people I mentor now. I mentor about five people. So like, not just like a, you know, maybe I'll, you know, hop on the phone with you once every year or something. It's, really deep, like helping them get into these major conferences, like really working for them. Um, but I tell them, it's like, you know, do this now, work so hard now, because when you're, you know, my age or when you're older, you'll be so happy you did. Like you'll, you'll have created such a reputation, such a network, such a skill set, so many experiences that it's going to open up a whole new world for you. And you probably won't even have to work as hard. Yeah, that's very, very true. Where can people find information about things to do outside the office? I know people are going, all right, all right, network, I'm writing it down, I'm making, burning it into my brain. What should we be doing, though? People know how to network when they listen to this show. We talk about it all the time. We talk about creating opportunities. But what sort of activities outside the office do you suggest to develop ourselves professionally if we're millennials looking to do that? Yeah. So, I mean, eventbrite.com, search for events in your area, whether they're social events, professional events. Kind of start getting out there. I think that um, meetup groups can be valuable. Uh, you know, if you want to be smart, you think about you know, if I went ahead into the marketing field, I'm going to go to the marketing meetup groups, the marketing conferences. You know, really more of a focus approach. Associations, the uh, American Marketing Association, American Management Association. You know, there's an association for accountants, for people in the, the legal field. There's definitely something, there's associations for people who like flowers. I mean, there's associations for everything. So there's really no excuse in that way. You just have to be aggressive and you have to really go to these events and contact people. You know, and I think mentoring is really important, but there's a really a thing that people don't understand about networking is if you don't show signs as someone who wants a mentor uh, that the mentor sh uh, should take you seriously, as in if you don't put some work in, you're not going to really get a good mentor. Jordan, you're not going to spend time on someone who has a blank resume, for the most part. I mean, unless it's like a relative or something. Many are asking to work here at The Art of Charm. And no, I, I can't invest in people that haven't exactly. shown a track record of investment. It'd be like putting money in a stock and a business and the person goes, well, I haven't started the business yet, but I'm totally going to, so I just need investment. And I say, cool, where's the business plan? And they go, yeah, I haven't really gotten around to that yet, but I, I kind of want to just get the funding first. It's like, well, that's not how it works. 
I don't want to mentor somebody who doesn't have a track record of being able to do that. In fact, if somebody wants mentorship, which I've, it's not like I don't get requests for that here and there, they've got to bring something very novel, very unique to the table. It's got to make sense. And quite frankly, I don't want to have to invent the mentorship curriculum that these guys are looking for. A mentor is there to answer questions and guide you in the right direction. They're not there to come up with a training program for you so you can become like them. And I think that's a common misconception that people have. You're 100% right. Most people, because of you know all these articles that are written about mentoring, it's like, oh, I'll just like reach out to someone and they should be my mentor. Sort of like entitlement, or if I reach out to a few people, someone's gonna wanna do it. Um, it's more about like, I look at like a, like Amanda, right? This girl, she's, she's 26, she's already making over six figures, like she's doing really well. This girl doesn't need me to be successful, but with me, I can make that happen much quicker. That's how I look at it. So this person, whoever I want to mentor, they don't really need me. But if they have me, they shoot up faster. You know what I mean? Yes. These people, exactly look what you're saying. These are like future rock stars. And I can make them rock stars quicker if I invest like wholeheartedly in them. And, and genuinely, like the people I mentor are also kind of my friends too. I'm not going to you know, pick someone off the street and be like, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a little more thought through. Yeah, I think it's it's more of a benign, rather than like a teacher-student relationship, it's more of a, a networking connection where somebody might go the extra mile to teach you something with less of an expectation of a return directly on that investment. If I email you and I say, hey, can you promote the show we did to your list? That's not a mentorship thing. That's a business transaction slash networking type of favor that is expected and makes sense. If I reach out to my friend Olivia Cabane and I say, hey, how did you get your coaching practice so that you could charge your clients $150,000? She'll say, read this book and then read this book and then start executing some of this stuff in here and then I'll show you how I network to find clients. And then a lot of that is come over to this dinner party that I'm having. you know, And, and that's the mentorship in a lot of ways. It's not, here's an outline of how I built my career. I'm not really good at you know, reading several books and articles and then just executing. It's more about, you know, they might inspire me to perform an action, right? I have to be able to learn by doing, right? So that's why I'm all about, let me just have experiences. I'll launch something. I don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but I'll take something from that. And then the next time I'll get better. You know, I launched kind of like a research portal a few years ago, it kind of bombed. I didn't really have a business plan behind it. I wasn't positioned properly. And now I'm going to do something similar I'll launch a new business next year, but like I've gone through what I did wrong last time. I have a, a much stronger body of research and better. It's the probability of it being successful is, is 10 times what it was years ago. And so that's how I look at it. I look at it as, you know, let me be attached to projects. They work, they don't work. I take something from it and then I build something new. I mean, you know, you have your whole life to try new things and why, why wouldn't you even take the risk? And that's kind of the entrepreneur in me. And again, going back to corporate America, you can do this, but with other people's resources. So why wouldn't you at least try? Yes, of course. And I think a lot of people are scared. There's a million reasons why people wouldn't at least try, but at least we can sort of cover that. Um, I think people are afraid to, of course. But how else do we develop those the skills? And which skills do we develop? I know that a lot of managers slash recruiters value soft skills over hard skills. Obviously, the Art of Charm teaches soft skills, so I'm interested in this. Yes. Uh, this is something I've been interested in for years as well, especially being an introvert and learning how to best communicate and build relationships because it's such a necessity in business. So here's what's really interesting. 
So a uh, study did this year, we found that uh, the number one thing that college uh, recruiters are looking for in new graduates is having a positive attitude. And that's also ranks in the top three for what managers look for when they promote. So literally, you either have a positive attitude or you don't. And if you don't, you're probably not going to get a job and you're probably not going to get ahead. And it's really that simple. Right. And it's kind of hard to measure. It's like, yes or no, I guess. Right. And so that's why you see all these people, they'll send a million resumes and hope that someone responds. And that just doesn't work well because you're competing against people who genuinely have a positive attitude and want that position. And so you're competing against, I guess, passion slash attitude. And you can't really compete against that, especially because it ranks so high. I mean, 98 percent of these recruiters are looking for it. So you really have to choose the right companies and the right company cultures to work at because then you'll have a better chance. The other two things that I think are interesting is, and again, like overall, like companies are hiring for cultural fit, aka soft skills over everything else. That's why the amount of interviews people have to go on now is potentially almost five rounds. I mean, Google, you have to go five rounds of interviews. Eric Schmidt said that last night. They said they even tested it out with someone to do 11 interviews, 11 rounds. And then they actually didn't even hire that person. Oh, he probably didn't want to work there after all that anyway. He probably uses Bing or Yahoo at this point. He does, he's against Google <laughs> after the torture. That's like a month of work for that guy. Oh, more. Oh, my God. I mean, I remember trying to get into EMC. It was like an eight-month process. Uh, so you could imagine 11. It must have been. It had to have been months. I just mean back-to-back-to-back prep time yeah. for those. But you're right. It probably spanned a whole year. <laughs> or something like that, or the majority thereof. And he's sitting there like, I'm on interview number 11. They said this is the last one, or I don't even know if they tell you. It's like a video game where you think you're at the last level, and it's like, just kidding. Our princess is in another castle. And this guy's like, no, I can't believe And then he didn't get the job. <laughs> exactly. Bastard. The other thing that they used to do in hiring, is what Eric Schmidt said again, it's like they used to, part of the interview process is they take you skiing, you'd have to play tennis with them, there'd have to be some sort of physical activity to kind of show the soft skills of who you are and if you would actually fit in above and beyond being able to do the job. That's becoming more important. Again, like we start, start off in this, in this whole conversation, it's like so many people have the same similar skills. They can get the job done. But now what does it come down to? It comes down to, do you get along with the team? Do you have a positive attitude? Are you a good team player? Why didn't they test for that stuff before? It seems like that's all just a bunch of cliches. I know, but even even managers, they look, it's having a positive attitude, being able to prioritize work and teamwork are the top three that they're looking for. Career Builder just studied this like four years ago. It was like 71% of employers are looking for emotional intelligence over IQ. So it, it is unbelievable. I think it has to do with competition. Uh, I think there's a lot of research that shows that people who have a positive attitude or strong soft skills, they last longer at a company, the success rates higher. So I, I think that's part of it is that there's a lot proven that soft skills equals this person stays longer and is more productive and successful in this company. Wow. Interesting. That makes sense, of course. But you always think, wow, now they're finally prioritizing this probably because every job is now so complicated that you learn most of it on the job anyway. Exactly. And they don't have the time. There's no like huge training centers for these companies where, you know, you get to spend a year, you know, training and learning your job. You get hired. You have to already kind of know what to do. And that's why internships and consulting and all this stuff on the side 
preparation of getting your first full-time job, your second or third, et cetera, is so important because you need, your whole goal really is to eliminate risk. You know, when you sell to someone and advertise to, to advertise on this podcast, it's like, to eliminate risk, you say this podcast has been around for a while. It's one of the top ones on iTunes. We have this many, you know, listeners and downloads. You basically give the metrics in in the greater picture in order to sell them, but you're really eliminating risk by being successful. You know, for me, it's like, you know, do we give Dan a third book duel or not? Oh, well, his last two books were bestsellers. He sold like tens of thousands of copies. They're in all these languages, blah blah. blah. Um, you know. Basically, you need to build a case to eliminate risk, and this goes with hiring especially. It's like, do we hire this person? Well, you know, at his last sales position, he increased revenues by, you know, 30%. It was 20% over his sales goals or something like that. Oh, well, of course we're going to hire this person because it's not a risk. You know, the second, you know, John Smith starts work here, he, he's, he's got this. He, he, he can sell it. He's sold these products at his prior company as well. Yeah, the track record, again, speaks for itself. I mean, that's goes without saying in a lot of ways, except a lot of people don't realize because they're, they've are they always been great in school and they can get by on this and their parents believe everything they say and their teachers know them really well. Your boss is not gonna give you the benefit of the doubt. So you might think, I got this or how come they're not letting me do this? And the reason is, one, you've done nothing to prove that you can handle it and two, every single person who's running a company right now has had multiple, multiple bad experiences where someone just like you tried the exact same thing in a slightly different way and totally blew it, wasted time, wasted money, and still thought that they were in the right up until the second they got canned and kicked out the front door. And they do not want to have a bad hire because if what a bad hire does, it affects the other coworkers. Uh, they're probably not going to be as productive. Maybe they're distracted. They don't get along with the team, so people don't really want to work with them. They get alienated. There's all these issues that happen. You know, I remember Neutron Jack or Jack Wells years ago when he was running GE, it was let's eliminate the bottom 20% of performers because if you keep the bad performers, they affect everyone else. Yeah, it's so true. My girlfriend worked with a total schlub and it was just drama every day. The guy was an idiot. I, at first it was funny and then it became kind of distracting and demoralizing because other people had to do his work and they were distracted by him and he was taking lots of time off and like not working on the weekends and leaving early and people started to resent the company even though it wasn't their fault. Well, it was indirectly because they hired him, but it was like, how come he went home at four on Friday and I'm here till seven every day? This is Here's bullshit. another thing that's really interesting, Jordan. And it happened last, so Eric Schmidt spoke last night, Colbert interviewed him, which was pretty cool. But he, he admitted something that uh, the head of communications when I work at EMC admitted too. If you are a super performer, but you have a bad attitude and you don't get along with people, they won't get rid of you. Some of these, at least those two companies won't get rid of you. You know, they call, they call these people a diva. You know, <laughs> somebody who always needs the attention, who takes credit and does all this stuff. If you are so good, the most talented person what they what you do, they, they probably won't get rid of you for the most part. Depends on the company culture and everything, but you know, there's a huge advantage to just becoming one of the best in your field. Sad, it's sad that that's just what it is, though. It is sad, but the, the problem is there's probably, in every department, there's one guy who's the best, but there's probably 10 people who think that they're the best. Well, the one way to find out is to become a diva that no one likes and find out whether or not you get fired by either getting fired or not. Exactly. <laughs> That's how you know how good you are. Right, right. And so a and lot of people, <laughs> right, then it's too late. A lot of people will push that envelope thinking I'm irreplaceable 
only to find out that they're totally replaceable and they've been replaced. And that can be a big, a big, that can be a rude awakening for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who got fired and come go, to me going, I just don't know why. And I'm like, are you, are you fucking serious? You're such a douche. Of course you got fired. We're barely friends. I can barely stand you. Or, or somebody who comes just wants an honest opinion that I don't know that well. I'll have a five-minute phone conversation with them, and I'm like, you're so arrogant. No wonder you got fired. I'm surprised it took this long. It's readily apparent. And they go, yeah, but I'm really, really good at X, Y, Z. And I'm like, do you realize how many people out there can program this? Or do you realize how many people out there can do what you do? I mean, you're not that valuable. But yeah, of course, becoming a subject matter expert, really being kick-ass, if you can really be in that top 10%, it's not worth it financially to get rid of you even if people can't stand you because you're just too much of a ninja. That said, not the best strategy because, again, there's only one guy at the top, generally. And then the other thing is favoritism. Okay. So the art of likability. You've, you've probably heard and talked about this, too. It's like, you know, managers already know who they want to promote before they even have to think about it, right? They already have a favorite in mind. And there was a whole thing in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago about this. Uh, so if you're really likable and they, they love you, uh, you probably will get the promotion. And the other aspect is if you are likable and you have a lot of friends at work, the probability that you leave that company is very low. So a great retention strategy for companies is how do we get millennials or just about anyone you know, in situations where they can make friends with their colleagues, because if you're friends, it becomes kind of a home for you, you know, not just a workplace. You know, this is, these are your friends. It's kind of like your family. You want to, you, you don't want to leave them. Yeah, that's true. You kind of, you love them even if you hate them, right? Because they've been around for a long time and they become endearing even if they're not your favorite person or you wouldn't have chosen them right away. But that is interesting that the people that get promoted have already been selected for that because it kind of says, well, wait a minute, we had this crazy vetting process for this. Was that just a formality? And I guess in many t cases, the answer is, yeah, it was. They have to look at everybody and give everybody a performance review. But at the it's end of the same. day, yeah. one guy's already been tapped. It's just that everybody's got to get a, at least the appearance of a fair shake. And the other thing that goes along with this is the formality is they have to post jobs online. But a lot of those jobs are already filled internally or they already know who they want to hire in the first place, which I think is wrong. So you could see a job posting online that just went up but it's already filled because it's a formality of the company. Right, they meaning have that, to put it out to the Meaning that you have all these people, maybe people who are really genuinely interested in that job or that company, and they're submitting a resume and there's no shot they'll hear back. Or they're here back and they have to go through a few rounds, but they have no shot anyways because it's, a, it, it's just a formality. I don't think that's right. It is quote unquote not right, and it's unfair and all those other things that it is, but at the end of the day, if it's your company and you already know who you want for the job, but there's some sort of rule that you put in place or that the board put in place or that, worse yet, legislators put in place, <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's, yes, it sucks because sometimes it might suck if the boss just chooses his kid for that position without putting the job offer out to everybody else. But on the other hand, what if you know you've already got someone that you're not going to have to train? Yes, maybe there's somebody else out there that's quote unquote more qualified for the job but they don't know exactly what you want. You don't know if you like them. It's gonna take eight months of vetting and a bunch of other bullshit to get them in the door. Or you can just put a fake job offer out there, hire the guy that you already planned on hiring and move forward with your life and do things that you actually care about. It just reminds me back to when I was doing internships in, in college. It's like I wanted an internship at Reebok and it took two years because I kept getting passed over because executives 
their children kept getting the internships. There's a whole thing, at least in the bigger companies, where as a thank you to executives or employees who've been there a while, their kids just get internships. Yeah, right? that's so you're really you're competing against you know executives' children who ha- who already they have the first shot over you, even if they're not qualified. So life is definitely unfair. It just means you just have to work hard, prove yourself, and like hopefully things work out in a sense. Yeah, that that part does suck. No wonder you're no wonder you hate it so much. <laughs> it's bitten you in the ass yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. And last but not least, we talked about this in the pre-interview: getting more FaceTime. And this is definitely something that's generational. Sixty-six percent of managers say in-person meetings are their preferred way of communicating with employees. Twenty-six percent said email. Here's the thing. I get messages from people that are business, that are important, and they're like billing-related things if they're a student at the Art of Charm, et cetera, et cetera. They'll send me a text message or they'll look me up on friggin' Facebook and they're like, hey, I have a question on my invoice. And I'm thinking, do you realize how unprofessional this looks? And then when I try to shove that aside, I go, geez, even if you didn't, you know how many Facebook messages I have in a given day? I did the math once and I get one every 10 minutes regardless of whether or not I'm awake. Here's what's interesting, Jordan. So even in the study I just had come out a few weeks ago on Generation Z, again, these are the oldest of which are juniors in college, youngest of which are four years old. They want the in-person meetings over texting and everything else. So here's the thing, though. So all the generations prefer this FaceTime, these in-person meetings, but that doesn't mean they're doing them. So there's a preference. I think internally, and I've been thinking about this a lot, internally as humans, like there's a reason why, like, solitary confinement is such a horrible thing. It's like a punishment because we instinctively need to be around other people personally. Otherwise we go crazy. Think about if you were, you know, in your apartment for like 10 years without actually being around another person, you'd lose your mind. And so I think we instinctively want to be around other people, but I think that we're relying too much on technology. And there's another study we did on with thousands of students and 40% of these students says that technology has hurt their soft skills. So it's really the reliance on technology that is one of the key factors in creating kind of like this whole generation of people who are maybe socially awkward or introverts or whatnot. But people want that FaceTime. They're not getting it. Excellent. So do the FaceTime. And that's the thing. People will know something instinctively and go, "Eh, I'm kind of getting away with this. My boss replies to my email. Talking with him in person is a little bit stressful because I'm kind of intimidated by the guy. I'm going to stick with email. There doesn't seem to be a problem. And we sort of rationalize our way out of FaceTime because we don't want to do it. And then when we have to do it, like at a work party or we get called into the office, we're like, oh man, oh my God, okay, all right. Uh, we got we to gotta make this happen. And then you're nervous when you're in front of the guy and he's like, ah, that guy's weird. You know, they don't think, oh, he's nervous because I'm the boss. You just think, what's this guy's deal? I, I never see him. He's an email ghost. Then we have a work party and he avoids me. Does he not like me? Your boss might think you don't like him or your boss might think you're just strange. Meanwhile, you're just intimidated. If you go and you get FaceTime regularly and you don't make a pest of yourself, you'll get comfortable with it, it becomes easier, and now you're communicating with people on their terms, which is good for you. And it goes back to what we were saying with favoritism, is you know if you, you're in person, you're building a, an emotional relationship with your manager, and then you get to have lunch with them and really get to know them, you could become a favorite while someone who's, you know, sitting at home in like Ohio on their computer answering emails, they definitely have a disadvantage when it comes to who to promote, whom to promote. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. There's a lot of really practical and actionable advice in this one. Where can people find more about you? Obviously, we'll have Promote Yourself linked up in the show notes as well as your site. Do you prefer, do you have a preferred way people to connect with you or reach out? 
Yeah, well, it's obviously been a pleasure. This show is amazing that you produced. Congratulations. Uh, my site is danshawbell.com. So it's D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-E-E-L.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or search for me on Amazon. And I have uh, two books, Promote Yourself and Me 2.0. We will link that contact stuff for you up in the show notes as well. And thanks so much for your time and your expertise. Thank you. Really interesting. I especially love the activities outside the office, developing those soft skills and getting more FaceTime. It's funny because a lot of times you think, oh, I got to get more FaceTime. Oh, it's weird. You rationalize your way out of it. You avoid it. And then, of course, activities outside the office. Oh, but I'm tired after work. I don't have time for that. Think of this as an extension of work, something that you have to do, not something that's optional and for gunners only. And you'll begin to find that you're really moving and shaking with the top people in your industry, and you're gonna be way ahead of your time if you're doing this as a millennial. So close that skills gap, widen that network, and start promoting yourself using the new rules. See what I did there? Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's gonna be a kick-butt guest on the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, thank Dan on Twitter. We're gonna link him up in the show notes as well. We know that very few people read Twitter, but he's gonna read your tweets if you say thank you. Bootcamp and live training details bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. Remember, two dots in there. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed, friggin' fix that already. Learn how to subscribe in Stitcher or iTunes. I won't bore you with the details. Of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android. And come on, guys, give us a review if you want to, but at the very least, tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found it. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.